welcome to the Cracking the Cryptic podcast. This is episode five, and today we're talking about YouTube. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm Simon Anthony. And I'm Mark Goodliffe. So you two are best known for your YouTube channel. And as, as we discussed in the first episode, there is no world where anyone would meet you two and be like, ah, yes, YouTube celebrities. Of course, this is clearly what, what these two do. <laughs> you look very affronted by that, Simon. <laughs> no, no fair, fair comment. <laughs> I, I just met someone today who, when I told him what I was doing, he just goggled at me. I couldn't believe it was true. So you're telling people now, is is this a shift in the last uh, 10 weeks? Well, if they literally ask, what do you do (laughs) as your day job now? Then I kind of have to answer it with something. (laughs) And I don't like lying. So that's the alternative. So you guys chose YouTube just because you were like, we want to do videos. YouTube is is the platform, right? That That was the thought process? It was indeed, yeah. Yes, nothing more scientific than that. And so what were your expectations of it? Like, what did you know about the YouTube culture or the, or the business model or anything like that? Oh, good grief. Simon sent me a blog post that he wrote the other day um, that he wrote back in 2006, where he had said, I've just discovered this website called YouTube. It's got really good stuff on it. And that was just fascinating. That, you know, <laughs> this, is, this was only about 10 years before we began trying to use it, which seems extraordinary. <laughs> we knew nothing. I know the feeling. It's like when I look back and I, I you know, did my first Sudoku and I'm like, man, a lot of my life right now revolves around Sudoku. Like I spend hours and hours every day, not only recreationally, but now professionally thinking about Sudoku. So it's a similar kind yeah. of thing. I remember when we first started the channel, we had very, very different expectations as to how it was going to go. I was absolutely convinced it was going to make us billionaires <laughs> in no time at all. And Mark was completely <laughs> the opposite. I was totally certain yeah. that nobody would ever watch one of our videos ever. So between those two, you sort of landed halfway through in that like people have watched, but I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that maybe you're not billionaires as a result of it. Well, <laughs> definitely not billionaires. We're, we're somewhere in between those two ends of the spectrum. <laughs> was there a moment where you simon went aha people are watching and you mark went aha we're not going to be billionaires well i was quickly disabused of how well it was going to do (laughs) oh very quickly and it looked like mark was going to be proved absolutely correct for many many months to be fair slightly more people were watching it than i had been expecting even sort of within the first month or two when we were mostly doing crosswords and they were, you know, saying some nice comments, but they just weren't gathering enough. We had calls regularly in which we'd agree that there was a one in a hundred chance that we would ever reach 200 subscribers or 500 or a thousand or something. <laughs> it, it just, and what are you guys at now? 360,000 odd. So yeah. it's, it's gone okay. It, it's just, you can't believe it. it that, that comparison is literally what goes through our heads every day. <laughs> yeah, it's totally surreal. Totally surreal. Because, I mean, we've, we've touched on it in the podcasts before, but getting to a 1,000 subscribers, I cannot tell you how difficult it is. Or it was for us. I'm sure if you're good at YouTube and you, you, know, you have experience and you're an interesting person and lots to talk about, <laughs> you can get to a 1,000 subscribers in two seconds flat. But for us, it was an absolute mission absolute mission do, do you know roughly how long it took from when you started to when you hit that 1k i want to say a year but i i might be slightly wrong about that it's it's a, it's that order and you know that yeah i mean you can't count from june when we both did a test thing when we started properly in about september it probably took a year after that a little bit longer i would say maybe in october november december of the following year we reached a thousand and yeah there were days when like we were quite excited because we'd got a new subscriber overnight Mm. oh yeah youtube sends you an email when you're that small youtube sends you an email every time you get a new subscriber and I used to monitor the email really carefully. Mark wouldn't give a monkey's. He would just be like, well, it's never going anywhere, so why should I even care? Uh, but I would get quite excited if we got two or three emails a day. You know, that would be a fantastic day of progress. I think there were a few crossword aficionados early on who we had emailed to say we were doing this or, you know, we'd put a post out there somewhere. They were the ones that we thought might join the channel. I think. We had a scheme, and we may even have done it, of trying to email all the private schools in Britain 
to suggest that it would be great for the pupils to listen to how to solve a cryptic crossword as a life skill. And we never mentioned Sudoku at all at that point. And we never got any subscribers from that either. <laughs> Do you remember who your first subscriber was? It wasn't you, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't remember. It was probably my dad or something. <laughs> One of the most fascinating things for me about the Cracking the Cryptic Origin story is, I mean, it's in the name, that you started as Cryptic Crosswords and then did that pivot to Sudoku. Was that purely based on the numbers? It was really, actually. I was convinced at the start that there was a real market for Cryptic Crosswords. <laughs> there just wasn't. Well, there was, there's a smattering of people. The, yeah, there's a small market for it. And they are very interested and enthusiastic about it, but it doesn't have the scale Sudoku has because I think the language, you know, the fact you can talk to most people in North America about Sudoku, but probably not most people in North America about cryptic crosswords is a huge deal. So, Well, and even more so in continental Europe, frankly. It's, it's, it's bigger still there, the difference. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Sudoku really transcends language barrier and also lets you hit places like Asia, who, who you know, you, you don't even need to speak English to be able to appreciate yeah. the Sudoku content. Perhaps speaking of which, actually, do you guys have demographics? Do you know where your audience is based? It's about thirty percent in America. Yeah, it's about thirty percent North America, thirty percent continental Europe, a bit less than that in the UK, and then the rest are spread around the world. So Australia is not super represented, my, my home home people. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, somewhere under 10%. <laughs> Considering our tiny population, that's actually not too bad. Your story is actually one that's pretty common on YouTube, which is that you had an idea for a thing, you did it for a very long time with a very small audience, and then one day it sort of sparked. And you did pivot, so you didn't stick with the idea that wasn't going to work for five years and then eventually call it it. But you did do this for a long time with a very, very small audience. And so during that time, were you wanting to give up? How realistic was it that... Mark was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not much. I mean, there were interesting moments even during that period where, you know, we tried doing a few Sudokus because we liked them and we thought people might be interested. There might be an overlap audience. And, you know, suddenly one or two of those, you'd notice they were getting more comments than the crosswords. They were sparking a bit more interest and they had something going and then we gradually moved over to doing about 50 50 and then the channel would start you know you'd suddenly get 20 subscribers in a day and you'd go wow actually you know maybe this could still happen and i don't know i, I whatever simon says i wasn't thinking of giving up although i was <laughs> very happy to be only doing a couple of videos a week simon just had a very cheeky look uh <laughs> i might have remembered wrong <laughs> So at what point would you have given up? Let, let's, let's say you hadn't hit that thousand subscribers after a year. Would you, would you still be doing it today with less than a thousand subscribers? Uh, probably not, I don't think. Maybe not today. We, we would have kept going yeah. for another year at the same sorts of level. That would have been, you know, yeah. we would have done that. Yeah, we were always trying to come up with ideas for how to get the channel more known. We sort of thought that a lot of people might be interested in it, but there was no way of reaching them really. I mean, the, the algorithm wasn't something we understood at all at that point. And our, our main way we thought we could grow the channel would be through celebrity endorsement or somebody like the Times might say, oh, go and check out these guys because they've got an interesting channel. So we were really trying to focus on that and not getting very far at all. We did speak to the Times who the, the, the puzzle editor there, David Parfit, was incredibly helpful. And Richard Rogan as well, the crossword editor, really supportive. But once we went to more senior levels at the Times, they were just like... <laughs> just... Yeah, all we wanted was a couple of shout-outs on their Twitter feed, yeah. and they just wouldn't give it to us. No. It was irritating. I just think... And then it, it almost went the other way, didn't it, where the success made you newsworthy, which presumably brought more subscribers? Well, yes, that was much later, though. So the, the first really big breakthrough we had was a video that Mark did, um, which was called something like a Sudoku with only three given digits. Was that? That's it. Is that yeah. it? The formula success, apparently. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that, that was truly amazing because we went from this situation where we'd hardly get you know, we'd get two or three emails a day from YouTube. And suddenly, we were getting hundreds of emails a day. When you can see the internet working like that, it's it's like a drug, frankly. I mean, it <laughs> is. I mean, it's just extraordinary. 
and you can see your channel growing in front of you. This thing that you've been nurturing that's only a tiny little seedling that's done nothing is suddenly sprouting these new branches everywhere. And it's just extraordinary. It's really, really intoxicating. Yeah, the views on that video, after about two days of normality, being somewhere around a thousand, they suddenly kept doubling every day for about 10 days, which was, it was just, you, we couldn't believe what we were seeing. Every day you'd wake up and go, has it stopped now? And it hadn't. Then of course there was a day when it stopped and it totally stopped. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's, the, yes, that's, you're quite right, Mark, because that was very strange. Yeah, it does. When the algorithm decides that the public has had enough of your video, it doesn't die down gradually. It literally just stops. Really? Yeah, yeah. You know, so you can have a video that sort of gets 1,000 on the first day and 5,000 on the next day, then 50,000 on the next day, then 200,000 on the next day. And on the day after that, it'll get 10 views. Wow. It, it's completely crazy. The, the sort of the cutoff is that abrupt. Is it that classic feeling of like, no, I, I expected this to last forever. And then having it, having your favorite thing taken away from you. Yeah, there was, wow. there was a bit of that. You know, although we said every day on the phone, it could all stop tomorrow. We'd stop <laughs> believing that when it suddenly stopped tomorrow. <laughs> so is this your first run in with the algorithm? Yeah, that was the one. Like we yeah. looked at it and we went, why did that do it? What do we have to replicate to make it happen again? And we tried and tried and tried <laughs> and, and nothing worked. And, and the, the, the trick was one more given digit, obviously. That's the <laughs> it turns out that that worked. Although I suspect between three given digits and four given digits, we had done other titles mentioning the number of given digits <laughs> <laughs> so for people who yeah. are listening who might not know uh, do you want to explain what <laughs> not not explain how it works but do you explain you want to explain what the youtube algorithm is we barely know okay um it's a bit, bit of a bit of a quest <laughs> what we understand is that youtube recommends videos to people in its you know if you click on youtube and you watch a video you'll see a a stream of recommended videos and sometimes certain videos get selected for that in some way that nobody really fully understands and obviously it's called the algorithm and I still think that even though people must have worked for YouTube and understood it when they were there nobody else outside really gets exactly how that works and how certain videos get selected for prominence or become trending videos on YouTube. There's a very good YouTube video that I'll link below by CGP Grey called Machine Learning or something like that. And it explains that even though there are people who know how the algorithm is assembled, no one in the world understands like how it's actually making its decision because it's like 15 levels deep and yeah. it's just it's, it's actually impossible to know. And so it's a really good primer on the whole concept. I really recommend it. So do you know what, what the algorithm rewards or what it weights or, or why it picks your videos when it does? No, but Simon always believes he knows what it does. He thinks he has <laughs> cracked the secret every time. And he goes, I think the algorithm is really interested in positive likes or the ratio of likes to dislikes or the positive comments or the number of comments that get upvoted. And then we wait and see and nothing occurs. <laughs> when we were first looking at the algorithm, we thought that it was incredibly important that people watched to the end of our videos. And we were really worried about that because if you look at the average view duration for our videos, you know, it's normally around 60 or 65% of a video on average gets viewed. So we were like, oh goodness, so loads and loads of people are clicking on it and basically just clicking off straight away. And which didn't surprise me at all. <laughs> no, and it didn't really surprise me either, but I, I couldn't see how we could possibly do what we were doing which is make videos where we solve a puzzle and do it more quickly in order to you know try and encourage people to hang on for that last digit goes in yeah one of the things that we determined early on we decided it has to be true it's obviously true that we have to keep the videos short otherwise we'll lose engagement we won't get people to the end why would anybody sit down and watch 25 or 30 minutes of someone solving a Sudoku or a crossword, you know, it would be madness. We have to do them fast. We have to do easy puzzles. We have to keep them short. And everything you read on YouTube says about the same, but it turns out not to be true for us. People actually like the longer videos slightly more. And there seems to be no, no limit to that length, which is just bizarre.
Yeah, and I actually think that our average view duration is quite a remarkable number because even though it may only be 60 to 65%, you know, these are some very long videos in some cases. You can make the case that we are actually holding people's attention for quite a long time compared to the average channel. I was going to say, I don't know if you know this, and I'm by no means a YouTube expert or anything like that. I'm just really fascinated by it. But my understanding is that 60-65% as a watch duration is incredibly high. I think the standard is like 30 to 40%. I think that's what people expect. And then to get to 60-65%, I think that is remarkably high. And I think it's because you have this audience who really enjoy, as I do, watching you solve a puzzle from start to end. And so a lot of people who click on it at all are going to stick with more of the video, I would say. Oh, yeah. That could be, could be right. But anyway, yeah, we've done everything in the wrong way according to the sort of accepted paradigm and somehow it's still been okay i was just going to say that that virality of that first video brought with it some slightly unexpected consequences like the comments of people who were shown this on their feed and clicked into it and had no interest (laughs) were quite funny like you know i remember particularly there was one that said darn i got click baited by a grandpa (laughs) which which i was both heavily insulted by and heavily amused so i thought that was absolutely brilliant but there were quite a lot of these comments saying what are these guys doing and why did I get this recommended to me? It's absolute nonsense. People getting really angry at you for it, for something that you have no control over. Angry at us and at YouTube, yeah. Yeah. By the way, clickbaited by a grandpa is a great autobiography title if if you're looking. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, we should use that as a video title. That's quite a good one. So, uh, again, I'm, I'm no YouTube expert, but I, I think as a result of watching you guys, I was searching around the internet for other Cracking the Cryptic related content, like meta content about your channel. And I found this, again, I'll link to it in the show notes. I found this really excellent video analyzing why your channel has done as well as it has. And that really started me down a rabbit hole of like learning about the algorithm, learning about YouTube. And I've spent... Yeah, probably close to 18 months now, just reading almost every day about how how virality works and that kind of stuff. And again, I, I've never actually implemented of it. So this is a classic like, I read a book, so let me teach you how to how to repair your car. But uh, I, I do find it all really interesting. And, and one of the one of the predominant theories is that at some point, the YouTube algorithm shifted, like they they rejig the variables to reward binging. And people binge content when there is a lot of content all on a single subject, and they are long. And so, as you said, by, by doing everything quote-unquote wrong for the time that you're doing it, I think you guys accidentally stumbled into something that was, you know, al- algorithm catnip. Like, couldn't have been better for the algorithm. Because I know when I started watching, I was like, oh, this is really fun. Let's watch more. And the thing about having four years of content at the time, I guess you had two and a half years of content, is that there is there is no limit. I think it's actually impossible for someone to watch all of your videos if they start today. And so, yeah, I, I spent probably three or four days just sitting there watching... <laughs> Just Simon, actually, because the algorithm knew that it was just Simon, so it was only showing me more Simon videos. I didn't know Mark existed until he solved one of my puzzles. Just showing me Simon solving puzzle after puzzle after puzzle after puzzle for days. And, you know, YouTube rewards people staying on the site. That's what they want. They want people to stay on the website. So your setup was exactly perfect for what the YouTube algorithm wanted. I think think that's a big reason that it sparked. That may be the case, but we've heard a lot of theories and we've been given a lot of advice by people and a lot of it is wrong. So who knows? <laughs> it's, uh, it's true. Yeah. No, no one, no, everyone can backseat drive YouTube very easily. Uh, it's one of those things because everyone can access it. We're all like, well, we know exactly what we're talking about then because I've watched a lot of YouTube, so I must know how it works. So do you guys have connections with the YouTube community at large? Like I know that uh, Hugo Schneider and um, James Charles. Charles, uh... I know that Kurt Hugo Schneider and James Charles watch your videos, but do you guys exchange tips with them? We have absolutely no content with the wider YouTube community, and we don't even know what it is. (laughs) The fact fact is, yes, Kurt Hugo Schneider did comment on our videos, and we then found out that he was huge because of other people commenting on him commenting. Um, And... We have been in touch with him, and of course, we are we are craven enough to say any tips on how to trip the algorithm. <laughs> but we've got nothing from him. So apart from that, nothing. I mean, we haven't been in direct contact ever with James Charles. We don't know any of the big YouTubers or anything like that, other than Kurt Hugo. It's really we have no content with the YouTube community. No, no contact. 
But Kurt Hugo Schneider, I mean, I, I, I count him as my friend now because I've probably exchanged a hundred emails with him. And like, you know, he is a fascinating guy. He is so, so clever. I cannot tell you. Just he's a, he's a guy you'd like to have a beer with in real life. But of course, you know, that's not likely to happen anytime soon. But he's, he's been tremendously helpful, not in terms of telling us how to trick the algorithm. I think he's, he commented in one email to me that he, he's given up trying to work out how the algorithm works. But he's let us use his music and he's regularly sent us puzzles and stuff. You know, he's really a top, top guy. And so uh, are you guys familiar with VidCon? No. So VidCon is the uh, the YouTube convention, basically. VidCon video convention. It's held in LA when, when we're not in pandemic times every year. And uh, a lot of YouTube creators will go there to like, again, network and learn how to how to trick the algorithm. Is that the kind of thing we can expect you guys to make an appearance at? <laughs> no one would know who we were. <laughs> we're Peter, we're not in that community. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, it's also interesting. The thought, that, the thought we could go to something like that and hold our heads up high is laughable, just bizarre. Yeah. So let, let's talk about the things that you do do that YouTubers are told to do, and so you you are following along. So uh, when, when did you guys start customizing the thumbnails, for example? Oh, that's a good question. We were having this discussion the other day, not in relation to when we started it, but in relation to the fact that we must now be some of the most experienced thumbnail creators on the planet. <laughs> because <laughs> you're making two every day yeah yes i think we started after about two years so about a year after we had a thousand subscribers and were monetized and we found you could do it and did you see a difference as a result i would claim so yes i'm not i'm skeptical actually at that time that we saw any difference simon's always been very focused on the title and the thumbnail as things that since we found out how you could do them anyway. <laughs> but I, I'm still far from convinced that they have much effect. Yeah, I mean, what can I say? He's just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> when you're making a thumbnail, what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish with them? Good question. Originally, I would try and include all the words of the title and give some prominence to the puzzle as well. I always wanted to make sure that people... You know, at the end of the day, what we're doing is borrowing these incredible creations and they need to take pride of place in the thumbnail. So I was always quite keen to, you know, to give them that pride of place, to make them massive so people would know, ah, it's a Sudoku video, and even be able to pick out elements of that particular puzzle on the thumbnail. Over time, we've moved away from trying to include all of the video title. I've learned this since. I think when people look at thumbnails, they don't have the eyesight <laughs> to be able to pick out, you know, all of the titles so if there are words now they tend to be very very big words that are you know very prominent but wouldn't be the whole title we have debated whether or not it's important for our faces to show any sort of prominence on thumbnails i am far from convinced that makes any difference but mark does think it does so if you i do think it does i've watched various you know some channels like number file the face of the guy presenting it is huge in the thumbnail and they do pretty well so there are other channels like that as well my, my own experience with thumbnails has been has been quite remarkable in that Simon, first of all, taught me how to do them when he'd found out. And he told me what elements we should put in them. And I tried to sort of do it. And every two months, he would get so annoyed at how bad my thumbnails were that he would eventually phone me up and say, look at your thumbnail from yesterday. What do you think is appealing about that? And I would say, I'm doing what you told me to do. I'm doing what you told me to do. And eventually he got so annoyed that he gave me a kind of six part guide to what was important. And I had to sit down with my wife and have her explain to me why the bits of design that he thought were important were important. Do you have the six part guide? I'd be so interested. No, I don't. But uh, and I'm, maybe it wasn't <laughs> written. But, you know, I had I had scribbled down what he said and I was like, so what? what and my wife then explained you need to make it like a movie poster so that it's interesting <laughs> looking do you not understand and i didn't i found it very hard you know if he said put in the puzzle put in some image put in your face and i'd put them in and a colored background and i thought i was done just put them in <laughs> randomly but yeah i would put them in randomly and i'd say but i did what you told me 
I, I followed the checklist. How can you be mad? <laughs> you said you wanted a sandwich. I've brought you bread. I've brought you ham. I've brought you butter. They're sitting there next to each other on a plate. What more could you possibly want? <laughs> exactly. But about four or five months ago, between Simon and my wife, they gave me this epiphany. And I now understand much better, Ooh. not still well, but better, <laughs> what is interesting in a thumbnail. And uh, they've they get compliments since then, which I never had before. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I remember that was the grumpy cat one was the one where... It was the cat one, yeah. I think that was the moment you finally agreed, you know, you could see the difference between the thumbnail you'd made and the thumbnail I made. Yeah, but that was because you and... really focused on the improved thumbnail <laughs> and made it really, really good. <laughs> and then I could see. There, there was a point in time about two months back where I feel like you guys massively, like collectively stepped up your thumbnail game. Or maybe just went off off the rails. Well, that's the point I'm talking about. Maybe it was only two months ago. Okay. Because there was a point where I started... I used to watch every video. And then I started doing the book and the ARG and other stuff. And I I got burned out on (laughs) cracking the cryptic. So I was no longer able to watch every video. But because the algorithm knew that I liked them, they kept appearing in my feed. And so I went from watching all of them to watching none for a while to try to recover. To uh, seeing these thumbnails pop on my feed and being like... Okay, I have to click through to that. Like, what, what is happening? Have they gone mad? What is happening? So it definitely worked. It, there was this moment where I went back to watching as a result of the thumbnails. So I can tell you anecdotally, it definitely worked. Uh, it's interesting. And that's the sort of feedback we don't even really know if it has an effect, but it seems to a bit. So you don't get too insulted. I had to watch through all of the videos for the book because you guys recorded 28 new videos for the book. And I had to watch through all of those in about like a two week period. (laughs) So I really, (laughs) I'm sure you guys got burned out making them, but I was also like, okay, I need, I need a little break from watching these two gentlemen solve Sudoku's just just for a little bit, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I I understand that burnout. And frankly, it's odd that more people don't suffer that sort of thing. Maybe, maybe just more people don't tell you. (laughs) So... You guys got to a thousand views and that, that's a significant number in YouTube land because that's when you get monetized, right? That's right, yes. What was that like? What was the pre-monetized and post-monetized life like? Very much the same. <laughs> so you th- There was almost no difference because <laughs> yeah. the amount you make when you have a thousand subscribers and 200 views is... Tuppence. I mean, or actually probably it's, literally yeah, it's, tuppence. It's yeah. US cents. Yeah. It's less than a dollar yeah. on the first few videos. So, you know, it's just, it didn't really change what we were doing. But it was still a nice milestone. And uh, do you get an email from YouTube or something? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. We get, you get an email because you have to register your bank account in order to receive the couple of cents that they're going to send you. And I think, well, I believed at that point that, that it would be, you know, we might benefit from YouTube because YouTube would now think, oh, we've monetized this channel, so we should push it. You know, we should see whether there is a wider audience. So I sort of believe there would be an effect of just becoming monetized on subscriber numbers but that it certainly didn't happen instantly do you guys remember what you did with the first dollar you made from cracking the cryptic no (laughs) no i think probably we were just you see at that point you suddenly realize good grief in order to actually make anything from a youtube channel the numbers you have to reach are so astronomically high and certainly at that point, we just couldn't ever envisage getting to a point where it would make money. You know, although you become monetized and think, oh, that's a relief. We've done it now. You haven't at all because, you know, you're still still making virtually nothing instead of nothing. Yeah, you're still making virtually nothing. What was the tipping point where you guys went, oh, this could actually be our main job rather than the, the thing that we do instead of our job? That was a long time. That was after the lockdown the 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 four digits video which did about two million views at once like within within a two-week period that got two million views and even at that stage you couldn't have said you know that that was a one-off we knew that clearly every video wasn't making that number of views and it could still only be a little bit of extra income at that point but it was after that when maybe when the miracle sudoku started featuring in in magazines and online publications and newspapers and you know even made an appearance on the tv and we suddenly went we started getting enough views constantly on a daily basis that we realized it could actually be a living of sorts yeah yeah and i think that there's there's livings and there's livings isn't there i mean mark and i are both at stages of life where 
you know we have we have a bit of savings so always for me it was whether or not I could earn enough money from the YouTube channel that I wouldn't eat into my savings too quickly so um, I'm constantly running that calculation <laughs> you know if I you know if I die in two years will I you know Will I have to be an investment banker for the last six months of that type thing? The thing I love about it is that this this is not a job that existed before you either. Like you you invented your dream job and then made it profitable, which I think is, is very lovely. We're not going to be buying yachts anytime soon, but it is nice to be in a position where we can think about doing this longer term and hopefully for me at least not go back into a financial services job which is the thing that terrifies me. <laughs> I was going to say, you have, you have this real uh, trauma in your voice every time you talk about it, uh, going back to the world of banking. Yeah, it would be, it would be so, so awful for me. I cannot tell you. Um, I, I am desperately, desperately keen not to have to do that. You know, it's, it's a very strange thing as well because I've spent so much of my life not enjoying the thing that I have earned money from. And now suddenly to be doing something that is, you know, it's, it's my dream. Other than, other than being a professional golfer and being good enough to win the Open or something like that, this, this is my dream job. To be able to solve puzzles for a living is it's just, I can't believe it. Yeah, it's just astonishing that that is the case. I mean, when we got together and decided to try it, I think we're still beyond the point now that we thought it there was a, a, one perc- a one basis point chance of it getting to this, an absolutely infinitesimal chance that it could do well enough to make a bit of a living. And yet it, it's doing a bit better than that now, which is just bizarre. You've burst through the ceiling that you imagined. Yeah, because I remember there's a YouTuber called Fleb who um, used to make puzzle, <laughs> puzzle videos. And uh, via Thomas Snyder, actually, I found out that Thomas knew Fleb. And so... Thomas put us in touch and I was so excited because I thought Fleb will reveal to me the secrets of YouTube. And at that point he had 127,000 subscribers. And that for us was a number we could not even begin to contemplate. So I think we were monetized at this point. But, you know, that gives you the idea of how how enormously different 1,000 subscribers is to 127,000 subscribers. It, it felt absolutely impossible. And I exchanged a couple of emails with Fleb and was astonished that he, he was very much, well, I could take or leave YouTube. I may well stop doing this soon because, you know, I've got other things I want to focus on. Because I'd assumed if he got 127,000 subscribers... He must be absolutely coining it and like just be able to, you know, buy Ferrari after Ferrari. But in fact, in fact, no. I mean, he 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 basically hasn't. He only had three Ferraris. It was ridiculous. Yeah. In fact, since I emailed him, he basically stopped, which is a bit strange. He did stop. I mean, he had he had had a video which had had two hundred thousand views, and then he stopped making them. We're going what. You have this magic and yet you're not using it. What's going on? It's just incredible that we have nearly three times the number of subscribers that that he had because I looked at him as a YouTube god, you know, no doubt. You guys went from sub 50 to like hundreds of thousands, like in a real jump, didn't you? Like that was a not an overnight process, but that was over the course of weeks, wasn't it? The first few months of lockdown we had the Sudoku with only four given digits and we had the Miracle Sudoku not that far after that. Yeah, and I think I think we went from something like 35,000 subscribers before lockdown to we, we went through 100,000 within that first month, definitely. Then the Miracle Sudoku happened and we kind of kept going for a while up to about 150 before it slowed down again and it was very heady times it was just astonishing you were looking at the stats every day and going what what's new today and seeing and and sometimes there would be something really good and I, i remember saying to mark on one of the days of the miracle sudoku i said do you realize this is probably the best day that we'll ever have in our lives on this channel and Mark, Mark actually, was surprisingly for Mark, was a little bit optimistic. He said, no, no, there'll be a better day than this in the future. And there hasn't been yet. 
There hasn't been. We, you know, we have failed to find the secret to virality. And it is like being deprived of this, you know, we talked about it a bit earlier, this amazing drug that the viral videos bring. And we haven't found the secret since the miracle Sudoku. And we don't know why. And, you know, we've made many, many videos in that time that, that should, where the puzzles have been so incredible. And we think, you know, we've not been unentertaining in solving them. And they might have had a very interesting story. But the via, you know, the algorithm doesn't bless us again. The algorithm giveth and the algorithm yeah, taketh take away. away. Yeah. I do think the miracle Sudoku was a different situation from the four given digits puzzle, though, because when Simon did the miracle video, he, he said, I think this is quite special and we should contact people. And we encouraged everybody we knew to tweet about it and r- tell people about it. And, you know, it was an incredible puzzle that we wanted people to see and, and, and Simon's solve of it. And it did go very big on Twitter. We got recommendations from people who had thousands and thousands of followers. And, uh, you know, some somebody who, who was in that position wrote this brilliant tweet which said, you are about to spend the next 25 minutes watching someone solve a Sudoku. And what's more, it will be the highlight of your year or something. And, you know, then hundreds and hundreds of people wrote back to him and said, <laughs> I didn't believe that, but you were right. And, uh, you know, the puzzle actually, and then, of course, it got in the newspapers and, and, and everywhere. And that one, I still think it didn't really ever trip the algorithm. It was just word of mouth. It was just people passing it on to other people through every form of social media and uh, learning about it that way. I know, I know I got sent that one. The, my friend who originally sent me your channel in the first place also sent me that one uh, to the channel that we we're in. He was like, hey, everyone watch this video. And so then I watched the video and I saw a day or two <laughs> later someone, one of you two going, hey, you should share this video. And I was like, oh, it worked. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Very shareable. So speaking of virality, like how important that is to what you do? Like if, if you never had a viral hit again, do you think the channel would uh, keep on going forever or would it be more likely to die out or... I think it would be difficult because what what happens is when virality ceases, the numbers gradually drop. And as a result of that, obviously, you see the ad revenue drop with it. So just a natural attrition of people. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but the funny thing is, or to us at least, this is very strange, is that every now and again, some of the big, the old big videos we've had, like the Sudoku with four given digits, will suddenly be our biggest video you know, for a week or two. Yeah, it'll go on a little surge, which is bizarre again. So it's like the algorithm has decided that this video represents this channel so perfectly that every now and again we'll, you know, we'll push it out to a a new audience and see what happens. Whereas the algorithm never thinks that about any new videos. So, you know, we have been typecast, if you like, by Sudoku with only four given digits. Outside of the two big hits, have you guys noticed any kind of pattern among the viral hits? Or I, I believe I see certain things. <laughs> <laughs> You're John gnashing it. You're sitting there drawing lines between the newspapers. And <laughs> I don't think we've had enough data to extrapolate from in terms of ones that have gone really, really well. That's the trouble. If you refer to, if the title refers to the fact that there's no given digits at all in the Sudoku, the video will get a higher than average number of views. Have you guys ever considered jumping on trends, whatever the latest YouTube trend is, doing a video based around that? I've tried to like notice when films are being released and things like that. And then, you know, if we if we have a, I think we tried to do something around the Star Wars, the last Star Wars film, where we had a Star Wars Sudoku and we tried to time the release of solve of that with the release of the film to try and get some sort of uptick but it didn't it didn't work i mean <laughs> i'm very skeptical about it anyway because if you did tempt someone in with a title and a video and a thumbnail that fooled them that it was something to do with star wars and then they click on it and watch a video a sudoku video they're not going to watch you again that's my view although peter venus uh, who's a very good setter and follows the channel he sent us an interesting email earlier on today where he attached uh, a video of somebody sort of exposing um, some of these viral videos. So there are some enormous viral videos out there that had sort of 40 million views. And the, the video will be called something like Five Life Hacks You Can't Live Without. And the thumbnail 
was a picture of an iPhone screen that had been shattered and somebody squeezing toothpaste on the screen. <laughs> and this video has 40 million views. And she was, uh, the lady behind the video sort of exposing the truth was saying, well, if you actually watch this 15-minute video of life hacks. There is no mention of toothpaste. There is no mention of an iPhone screen being shattered. You know, it's entirely made up of other stuff. And, you know, people are genuinely being clickbaited. But they don't seem to mind. By the time they get to the end of the video, they've sort of forgotten they clicked on it to, you know, see why toothpaste fixed iPhone. Presumably it does have life hacks, though. <laughs> yes, it did. Just not that one. It's, it's not a 40-minute video of someone solving a Sudoku. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> so do you guys watch any other Sudoku channels? Because I know since you guys started, there have been a few more that have sprung up to solve uh, solve Sudokus like you do. Not really. Um, I'm aware that there are some out there, but I don't, I don't have time to look at them, to be honest. And I know that there's some people who stream as well. I used to sometimes look at um, Bastian, Bastian Valgem. He used to stream occasionally, and I used to quite enjoy watching that if I found 10 minutes because Bastian would do a couple of puzzles in 10 minutes <laughs> but no I, I I don't I don't subscribe or I, at least I don't don't, don't have the hours of yeah. the day it's the same for me it's a matter of time Simon was really appalled when I told him about a year after we started that I'm not even sure if I wasn't on the channel I'd be watching <laughs> yeah that's what he said <laughs> Would you? Would you watch it. this if you... I mean, this is kind of what we're talking about. I'm saying other Sudoku-solving channels. Oh, oh, you mean because you're his best friend? No, no, I was just, <laughs> no, I was just saying, I, you know, I like to solve Sudokus. I'm not... I wasn't sure if I'd be watching somebody else explain it to me. That's, that's absolutely not true. As Simon said, when you watch Bastion do it, you just sit there awestruck at how, how fast he is. So maybe, maybe I would be. I think I would watch Cracking the Cryptic if I wasn't doing Cracking the Cryptic because if you only have a certain amount of puzzle time in a day and most people do the question is how do you spend it and one thing that Cracking the Cryptic sort of makes sure of is that you know that day's puzzle is an amazing puzzle so if you want to do an absolutely world-class puzzle with your puzzle time then you might as well watch Cracking the Cryptic because you will be getting the best puzzle that you possibly can get. Yeah. You guys offer education, entertainment, and curation, basically. Exactly. That wasn't necessarily true in the early days, of course, when we were kind of just picking a New York Times hard puzzle or something, and we assumed people wanted tips as to how to look at classic Sudoku, and we weren't really focusing on the overall brilliance of each puzzle. That was probably when I was commenting I wouldn't be watching it, whereas, as Simon says, now the puzzles are so good time after time after time that... There is something rounded about the experience, I think, of, of watching that puzzle get solved. So I've been in the background of these uh, when they go up on YouTube. We've got... <laughs> I, I, originally, I had uh, recent puzzles. People were like, I haven't seen that one yet. Don't spoil it for me. So I've been going back to the very start of your channel and grabbing puzzles from there. And it's been very interesting seeing the contrast in presenting style from when you started to now. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to say something bold, which is to say I think you've both gotten much better at presenting than you did uh, than you were four years ago. And so my, my question is, did you guys do anything specifically to like build that skill, or was it just a case of doing a video every day? I certainly didn't do anything. I mean, I've got a new microphone. I'm. I think I'm more confident now about going off it. <laughs> where my brain takes me so my, you know my brain will just start spouting rubbish and i i quite often just go with it now you know and i'll say things like nori 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 <laughs> you know because i've realized that actually people quite like you know they like the human side of it a little bit and i think if i'm more comfortable with showing that than i used to be i used to think i had to be very very you know, professional and, you know, not give proper. Yes, not give any hint as to my actual personality because I assume my actual personality would be so horrendous that people would instantly <laughs> uh, click off the video. But I think actually now we've realized that people want to see a bit more of the human side. That's what I think anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is just practice though. You get more used to talking to a camera, trying to get people through the puzzle, not drying up with sort of while you're thinking you've got to keep saying something most of the time you know god knows i don't think we're professional yet i think we are we are a lot better than we were but i still watch some other youtubers and go wow 
you know, they really know how to hold an audience. And I don't think I have that skill at all. They're often doing it over the course of 27 takes instead of uh, one continuous 40 minute shot. <laughs> that is true. They, they get the advantage of editing. And, I, you know, I watch these guys who, who every five seconds of the video is chopped. You know, they're yeah. basically stringing together a sentence from 20 takes. Yeah, so the jump cut style. I don't even know how, how you would have the patience to do the jump cut style. Exactly. Luckily, we have the excuse that we have to present a full single sitting solve. That uh, we don't have to bother with the editing so much. Well, you two are very proud of your kind of lo-fi nature, where, where you're using the webcam on your computer and, and whatever microphone. Well, I wouldn't say proud. I think <laughs> I, I, I would love it if somebody could just come into my office and make my computer and my setup work perfectly. That would be great. I would love that. But, uh, you know... That, that just doesn't happen. So what, what we found is something that works and that people seem to not hate. Um, so we just continue to do that over and over again because neither of us is tech savvy enough to know sort of exactly how to position our microphones. Or Yeah, for a long time, I expected that some TV executive would watch the channel and go, we need these guys as a program. <laughs> and we would be spirited off to a studio where somebody would make us actually look and sound good. Um, and gradually realized that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so this brings us to the end of the show. Uh, I just want to ask a very broad question, which is what have been like the, the highlights and the lowlights of, of your experience on YouTube? The highlights. Those viral yeah. moments, wow. those moments when it's fire, you know, with that day when Simon said it'll, there'll never be a better day. Those days when you're waking up and you can kind of watch the views go up all at once. It, they're thrilling. But actually... If, I, if I'm serious, that the, the overall highlight for me has been how incredibly nice everybody on the channel is. The comments, you know, there are one or two trolley type people who and they're the lowlights, but they're so rare. They're so few. Everybody's incredibly <laughs> nice. You know, even when we completely foul something up, people go, oh, well, you know, you do a lot of these and you're trying hard and we get it. And I, the Discord community is so helpful. I, I just think the community that, that has grown up around the channel is the highlight. Yeah, I would, I would add to that. I'd say that we've probably had, well, dozens now of emails from people who have problems in their lives that we have apparently helped with. And some of those are incredibly moving and surprising. Um, and the fact that we've been able to do that is is mental i mean even yesterday we were involved in somebody's marriage proposal you know literally we you know <laughs> i solved a puzzle where there was a secret message which was will you marry me he used my video to ask amanda to marry him and she said yes and you know that, that's that's a pretty it's a pretty special thing to be involved with even to a tiny extent um and you know the channel's given us those sorts of opportunities so yeah, for adrenaline, I'd definitely say it's the viral videos. But like in terms of tugging on your heartstrings, some of the emails we've received. And in terms of low low lights, it's definitely low lights for me is every every video where you know you just get dinged for every poor every piece of poor scanning you've done. You know, it's very hard actually. I don't think Perhaps the people who make these comments realize how hard it is mentally to deal with because you are having your faults emphasized very publicly day after day after day after day. And that is hard to take, especially if you are at least like me and I suspect like Mark, we're pretty competitive people and it, it gets to you. It just does. Uh, there's, you know, we would love, I'm sure Mark agrees with this, we would love to not make mistakes. We'd love to have perfect scanning or even just slightly better scanning. <laughs> but we're doing these things, these solves live, and it's some of the puzzles are hard. And we're thinking about a lot of things and trying to commentate. And yeah, we, we botch it up a lot. We got a lovely email the other day from a lady who'd listened to one of the earlier podcasts where we'd mentioned this. And uh, she said, you just have no need to worry about the bad comments in any way. And she included a, 
a uh, TED talk from a lady who was quoting um, Theodore Roosevelt's Man in the Arena speech where he says the credit's not to the critic and uh, the person who who is criticizing doesn't know the triumphs and doesn't know the errors and shortcomings. And uh, the lady who was giving the talk finished up with saying that uh, anybody who gives her advice who's not actually in the arena themselves, she just totally ignores. It's quite empowering. I mean, I'm not going to say I totally ignore my critics because I don't, because sometimes they're actually very helpful. But uh, it's you do have to think about the harsher comments and whether those people would survive if they were filming themselves solving a Sudoku. Yeah, I... I recorded a series last year where I, I live set Sudokus. Uh, it was called Setting the Sudoku. I think you can find it uh, if you just YouTube that. And oh, man, there's, there's one where I spend probably, because it, it, you know, it's quite a lengthy process to set a Sudoku. So I spend probably two hours, of which more than an hour is me being unable to remember that there's different ways to add up to eight. <laughs> and so it's just... I went back and watched it later and I was like, oh, Peter, what were you doing? Like, how did you get so stuck on this for a full hour? It's, it's really, it's such a different process when you're doing it in front of a camera and you're thinking about presentation and you're talking and you're, you know, it's using such a big portion of your brain that you only have a certain amount left for solving or setting in, in your case, uh, solving in your case. And it's, it's the other thing too is that you've got to remember that no matter what you do no matter what you do people will, will comment negatively and it, it will often have no basis in reality whatsoever and i know this because someone commented on one of the podcasts that they didn't like me so clearly oh that's ridiculous no matter what you do there'll be some lunatic who's making up reasons <laughs> a lunatic who is not in the room <laughs> yeah unless you've been me you cannot criticize me in any way that, that's my uh <laughs> um, <laughs> So that brings us to the end of this, which is actually the penultimate episode of the first season of this podcast. So we're going to we're going to do one more episode, then have a little break, and uh, hope you've enjoyed it so far. We've got lots of lovely emails. You can email us by emailing podcast at crackingthecryptic.com with any questions that you'd like me to ask. Uh, I I, tie the, I I work them into the question I'm asking. I don't call people out. I'm terrible like that. Uh, but you can also support the show by going to patreon.com slash crackingthecryptic or by visiting jellybean.games and using the promo code BOBBINS to get 20% off any of the games I make. That's right, I make games, they're great. Uh, I'd recommend Dracula's Feast New Blood, which is a logical deduction game for 4 to 8 players. If you enjoyed the podcast, just leave a comment or send us an email, and we'll be back next week with more about the wonderful world of Sudoku and Cracking the Cryptic. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.